button at the right time. <laughs> yes, thank you. So we are in Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 22. The Word of God says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And um, that's where we'll stop. I'll leave off there. But. We are uh, right in the midst, as I said, of the study of Paul in Athens, compelled by the gross idolatry of the city um, and the irony that a city known for its intellect and wisdom was so ignorant of even the basic facts of, of Christian, uh, the Christian message. And... Uh, and none of the things that God had put into place for them, uh, being the creation that we might observe, their own, uh, the image of God stamped upon their own souls that they might consider their existence and the existence of God, none of those things had driven them toward the Creator with thanksgiving, but rather away from Him. And, uh, and so Paul, provoked by this, began to, um, to tell the truth, um, share the, the gospel with them. And uh, we were at verse, we ended kind of at verse 27, 28, right? And I, if you remember, I'm, I'm making notes here to where I leave off. I think we had just talked about one of the attributes of God being his omnipresence, that God is everywhere present at the same moment. And, um, and we can take comfort in that, though we're going to look at that in much more detail when we study those attributes, in particular here in, in a week or two. Um, we, we want to know here that it's comforting to us as Christians that God, being omnipresent, is present with every one of his children at the same moment. We don't have to pray to God and say, now God, when, you, when you're not busy with someone else, I have something I need to, to, uh, to, to ask of you. He is present at the same moment, wholly present, absolutely present. All of the presence of God is present with us each and every one at the same moment. And that uh, stretches the mind uh, to think of it in those terms. So um, we'll say more about that when the time comes. But we, we come in then to verse 28, which is where I think we left off. And it says, the verse there says, For in him 
last part of verse 27, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. So God is, um, Paul is uh, explaining, is the giver of life. There is one and one only source of life. When you get in your mind and back of everything, well, what was before this, what was before that, what was before that, you end or you must end at one point, and that is with the eternal, infinite God who has always existed. He is the source of life. So, so in to whom do we owe our life and breath and all blessings and all things? In whom do we derive or from whom do we derive our life, our existence, our knowing? Uh, of course, it's, it's from God, our creator. Um, God's the giver of life. And if someone wouldn't mind reading Job uh, 12, verses 7 to 10, then I would also ask someone to have um, Acts chapter 7, verses 47 to 50. So Job 12, 7 to 10, and then Acts 7, 47 to 50. sin uh, to look around at our creation and, and actually deny we who have been given the capacity to know our God where the birds and the uh, inanimate creation has not been given that capacity but we who have are the ones denying uh, that very truth so again we're rebuked by that in our in our old sinful self all right someone read Acts chapter 7 verses 47 to 50 Don't be shy. It was Saul who built a house for him. However, the most high was not building houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. Your mighty house is within me, says the Lord, for what place is there in the earth? Is it not my kingdom? Yeah, heaven. His throne, earth is his footstool, and you know, he who created everything. I mean, what how would man build that we could think would contain God? And that's the sense of the, that's the idea. Is we understand in the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to make the temple where God would localize his presence to their to their benefit, to their blessing, and to, to be a witness to the nations. But but that that was not the temple was not containing God. Kind of glory that dwelt there was not, it wasn't that God was there and only there, right? It was just a localization, it was a manifestation of the great glory of God, who is in fact present everywhere at the same moment. It brings up another slight differentiation when we're talking about the character and attributes of God that's a little bit different from omnipresence. It's, it's like it, but it's a little different. It helps us to understand a different aspect, and that is the uh, immensity of God that 
God is immense in the sense that his nature is not limited to any place in space. His nature is not limited by space, but rather God created space, right? There was no such thing as, you know, there was no spatial distance or expanse before God created it out of nothing. And so his nature then is not subject to the limitations of space like we are. You know, we are subject to the limit, all types of limitations, and space is one of them. You, you cannot immediately be in the same place, at two different places at the same moment, that God can. He doesn't have the limitations of, of space. So when we speak then of God not being far from any one of us at the end of verse 7, isn't Paul bringing out something that's just a little more important than distance of space and that line of thinking? Isn't he speaking in terms of relationship? Because God is everywhere present at the same moment. There's no place which God is not because he fills all things. So again, it's the mind of man fallen and broken by sin that denies, it's our sin that has separated us from God and denies the very relationship because God is so close in the sense that he fills his creation. That we would deny him, we would oppress the thought of him, we would go our own way in our sin, although he's ever present with us. It's not a matter of distance. We don't, if we're going to get close to God, we don't have to, as many religions do, say, over here is where you go. Remember, Christ even warned us, as uh, Phil has been teaching through Matthew, the early chapter, they say, he's over there in the mountains. Don't go over there. Well, here he is over here. You know, the return of Christ has happened, or the manifestation of God, or God is in the wilderness, or he's in the desert. We're not to think in those terms, because God is everywhere present. He's present with everyone his people. Changes your, your, um, your thinking entirely, doesn't it, when you don't think of him terms of having to go to me, go to by God. God came to us. We're never near. Remember one time, I, I think it's been a while when I was teaching, but I said that whatever God creates never ceases to exist. I want to stand by that statement now. It's a statement that I don't know if it, I know it's not original with me. It can't be, but I just haven't seen anybody else say it in those terms. So it's open to debate. It's just a thought of my mind that I think is true. I've tried to bear it out through the scripture. It might be proven wrong, and that's fine. But I'm going to stand by it until I, until I can see that it is a wrong statement. I think it's true, the best of my ability. Whatever God creates never ceases to exist. It changes form. It changes character. For instance, the world has changed forms. And in the judgment of fire, when he renovates the world to create new heavens and new earth, they will be changed, but it's still heavens and still earth. And there will be materials that God spoke into existence that are uh, used. You and I change when we die. Now, when we change as we live, of course, we age and, and change that way. But when we die, we change. We have a change of our existence. So our soul goes to be with the Heavenly Father in Christ, Holy Spirit, so our body lays upon the earth. Then in the resurrection, there will be a change. But it's you, he is... Not, uh, how might I say it better? Whatever God has created continues to exist, it just changes form or nature or character. The world will continue in some form. We continue. Angels continue. So, you know, deterioration, composition, combination, 
and yet it's still all things that God originally created. There's something to that, I think. And if not, I there there are minds so much more capable than me, and one of those probably could uh, find fault with that. But that's all right. So God is everywhere present at the same moment. He fills all things, and He is not far from any one of us. All right, verse twenty-nine. Um, there in verse 28, he quotes uh, some of the poets that the Athenians would have been uh, familiar with, where he says, we are his offspring. And then again, in verse 29, beginning, he's quoting uh, one of their poets. It says, or one or more, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And that where he talks about how we should think about the divine nature. That's really, as I was reading through this uh, some months ago, that kind of sparked the whole idea of thinking about the divine nature and the attributes of God. Uh, because, you know, that is obviously a goal of Paul's to get them to think rightly about the divine nature. The whole problem of fallen humanity is we do not think rightly about the divine nature. We limit our thoughts of God. We, we try to bring God down to where we are in order that we might manipulate and that we might feel that we've mastered God, as we might master the subject of philosophy or mathematics or, or uh, science or whatever it is that we are to do. We're not able to master God. We're not able to think all that can be known about God, which is an impossibility. We're driven to worship God when we consider his existence. But you can never worship God in his infinitude if you're thinking that he's just like you and I. You're not going to worship God. You know, very, very uh, dutifully and very profoundly, someone who is just like you. So, although I think we do that, don't we? Not sinful. So, verse twenty-nine. Then, God is not, says Paul, what man's imagination and creativity might make him out to be. He's not the divine nature. We ought not to think of the divine nature in those terms, says Paul, especially like they were when they say like something that. That man forms out of gold or silver or stone, some image that, that the creativity of man worked up, and then that becomes a representation of their God. You know, it's just uh, it's just almost unfathomable to the Christian mind, but that's exactly where the, the human mind will go outside of the life of the gospel. So it brings up another attribute we might mention here that we'll talk about later uh, in the study, and that is that God is infinite. God is infinite. Basically meaning has no limitations whatsoever. God doesn't have limitations. His power, not limited. His wisdom, not limited. His love, not limited. His existence, not limited. There's nothing that limits God except God himself. And you can't even think of those limitations which God would never act outside of his own nature and will. You really can't think of that as a limitation, can you? Because it's a perfect existence. God is perfect in his infinity. And so whatever limitations we might say, we're thinking of not able limitations. But when we talk about God being limited only by his own nature and will, we're talking about a perfect limitation. Of all perfections, God is the most perfect. So he's infinite. And um, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. 
His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we've got to accept that. His ways are higher than our ways. God is, is not saying, you know, you can't, you can't know me at all because he's revealing himself to his people. But he's saying you have to, as, as my creatures, you have to accept the fact that I'm the one eternal, infinite creator. And there's, there's never going to be a time and you can say, yeah, I know everything there is to know about God. Got God, you know, check that off the list. You know, that's my bucket list. One of the things in my bucket list was to know God and all of his infinite perfections. Been there, done that. We can't say that. In reality, it's, you can't. You'd be fooling yourself. Or trying to. But what God has revealed about himself, the part of him that we know is true. And it is accurate. And it is able because of God's wisdom and love and mercy, to lead us to true understanding of who he is. It's not, a, it's not that we, since we can't know all about God that we might as well not try to know about God. It's not because we can't know all of God that we're not, what we know from the scripture is not enough, because it is, because God has given it to us. It's more than human mind can comprehend, really, even what's revealed in the scripture, and that's not certainly not all of God. He's infinite. So if you think about it, then Paul's saying there in verse 29, to make an image of God is to bring God down to a place where we might be able to manipulate and control and, and minimize God. Now, if you can bring God down to your level, are you responsible to him as an eternal creator? Is he really eternal creator at all? If you're thinking of him in those terms. So that allows you to do your thing. You become your God. You become the one to whom the, the, the be-all, end-all. You're the standard now by which your life is measured if you bring God down. But that's not going to be the case. Can someone read Romans 18? No, Romans 1, 18-23. Romans 1, 18-23. Same author, Paul. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author. But the human author being Paul, and you'll... See some of the words here in Romans that were reflected in the book of Acts. Romans 1, 18 to uh, 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what they may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, whose invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Yeah. Yeah. So, without excuse, I mean, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And you might say, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel? You know, if there are all generations there, those who have never heard the gospel would probably get presented to this question. Well, no one is innocent before God because ever since Adam fell in the garden, we're all under the curse and wrath of God. We come into the world under the wrath of God, and it is the grace of Christ. Uh, and the drawing of the Holy Spirit that, that regenerates us and brings us from death to life. No one's innocent. That's true. There are those that have heard very little of anything of God or the, of the 
gospel, but they're rendered without excuse because it says there in Romans that the creation itself reveals very much about our own creator. It reveals his divine nature to a degree and his attributes to a degree because he built within man whom he created the capacity to understand those things. Even in our darkened, sinful condition, that capacity in a, in, a, in a minimized way is still there to know that there's a God who created us, that there's someone outside of ourselves, that man is not the height of creation, that there's a God who created all of this. And that the, 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 um, the creation itself and, its, and, and all its facets reveals something about God and his glory. The, the, the diversity of the creation, the diversity of humanity, the diversity of circumstances and times and seasons, which God, we saw earlier in the verses, has always appointed those in order to point man toward himself, that they might find him. All of those things point to an infinite, wise creator. They do not point, as is so often said today, towards chance and, and you know, biology happening in, in just the right order and evolution. It does not point to that at all. Far from it. It points toward intelligent design. And um, it's interesting there that I was thinking about uh, yesterday evening when I was looking over this again, I was thinking about when Neil Armstrong stepped off the, the uh, onto the moon the first time and he thought about what to say and he said, this is one small step for a man, you know, about this far from the, the lander to the, the surface of the moon. It's one giant leap for mankind. I was thinking, you know, it's true with 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 our thoughts of God too. You know, it says there in Romans that creation reveals God and we might be able to grope after him in some sense and at least give him the glory with the knowledge that we have. Um, but what do we do? We begin to make God like ourselves, but it doesn't stop there. That small step of trying to bring God down to our own level in our thinking, it's a small step, is one gigantic leap away from the truth of the word. You know, because it doesn't stop there, does it? It said that they go on and they go from the image of the man to image of a bird, the image of the animals, and the images of the crawling creatures. I mean, you see the degradation right there, the, the descending of the, the thoughts of men about their own existence and, and the reason they are and to whom they are accountable. You never just... You, so that one small step becomes a gigantic leap, theologically speaking, <laughs> away from away from the truth. I think there was a Russian cosmonaut that went into space, returned, and when asked about it, he simply said, I did not see God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a progression too, isn't it? Um, exchanging the glory of God for the image, and ultimately, the degradation is there is no God. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they, what is the image of God? It's not a physical image, is it? In, in man, let me ask you this question. Maybe this will get to the heart of what we're talking about right now. What is it in us that is the image of God? Not the physical part of us. What is it? What part of man is the image of God? Spiritual, I heard you say. Yeah, that's true. Okay, but what part of us, I should say then, more specifically, would consider the spiritual part of our existence and our relation to God and creation? Isn't it the mind? Isn't it the mind, heart, and soul? 
It's what maybe Paul refers to as the inner man to distinguish it from the, the outer or external. That's, that's what bears the image of God. That's after which we are created by. You know, and so the glory of God is not seen in any physical representation as, as Jay and Sandra were speaking of. It's, it's seen in the relationship of being able to know the one who created us, the one who spoke everything into existence. The ability to not only know him, but but have a relationship with him in the sense of children to a father. It's not an acquaintance relationship. It is a familial relationship. It is as close as the most loving father can be to his children. And our Creator has given that to us. And when we meditate on Him, when we read His Word, when we communicate with Him in prayer, when we obey His commandments, we are, in our mind, where it begins, works its way out externally. I'm not trying to be as the uh, Gnostics in, in the early part of the church to, to completely make a hard division between physical and the spiritual. No, no. We're both. We're, we're spiritual beings with physical existence. But what I'm focusing on now is the fact that everything begins in the mind and works its way out into our experience, into our actions, our attitudes, our speech, our words. What the hands do, the mind thinks. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It all begins there and works its way out. So the mind is the image and likeness of God that we are created in. Okay? I've either thoroughly confused you or you're like me and just saying, wow, God is so great. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Hopefully I haven't done the former and confused you, which I'm quite capable and qualified to do. <laughs> confuse you thoroughly. Well, let me ask this question. Can the creature create its own creator? And isn't that essentially what you're saying, what the Athenians maybe were saying with the, with the culture that they had? That they worshipped all these multitude of idols and altars, and you know, or, or they made an altar representing rep, representing their god to appease their god or gods. Can the creature create its own creator? Isn't that just an impossibility? In our thinking, we can. The answer is that we can, in our sinfulness, think of God in those terms, but in reality, no, it's an impossibility. I have this um, think about little think about this note, so I wrote it on a separate page. Now, there is an image that we as Christians are commanded to worship. You know that? There is an image that we are commanded to worship. Let's look at it together. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. This is where you guys all get your heresy goggles on, get ready to throw Ron out of the church. No, no, I would never do that. I would really never do that. Hebrews 1 3. And he, speaking of the Son, is the radiance of his glory, of God the Father's glory, and what? The exact representation of his nature. He's the exact representation of God, image of God. Okay, we're not done yet. Second Corinthians four four. Was it 
read this in one more place. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which says, speaking of those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the what? Minds. Not the physical eyes, but blinded the minds that cannot see and glorify the image of God that is within them. But he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? The image of God. This image we are commanded to worship. The exact representation of the divine nature, who is Christ. The light of the glory of God, who is Christ. The image of God. One final place, Colossians 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Colossians. A man told me one time when I was a teenager, you remember that by Girls Eat Popcorn, G-E-P-C. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Guys eat popcorn too, so it could be guys eat popcorn more. Go eat popcorn. There you go. <laughs> the politically uh, correct one, the, the non-threatening. Uh, Colossians 1 and verse 15. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact representation of the divine image. And we are not only encouraged, but commanded to worship him. So there is, in fact, in a positive sense, an image that we as Christians are commanded to worship. Not an image of stone and gold, not localized in a place, but Christ. As Christ, we are to be conformed to that image. In fact, we won't look at it right now, but it says in Romans 8 that we are to be conformed to that image. And I've heard Jay say it before, and I believe I've heard Phil say it before, that, that you become like the gods that you worship. It's a truism, isn't it? You you will conform in your thinking, in your actions, in your behavior to the God of which you are setting your mind and your thoughts and your devotions upon. If that God is you, if that God is pleasure, or if that God is whatever it may be that's not Jesus Christ, then you will become like unto your God. Israel did of old, you know. God rebuked them because he said, you've become as deaf and dumb and lifeless as the stones that you are bowing yourselves down to. You become like your God. But we, on the other hand, are commanded to become like our image of God, true God, Jesus Christ, and be conformed into that image. Not his physical image. He had a physical body as a man. He still does in a glorified fullness. But but that's not the focus, is it? It's the nature, the, the nature of God um, revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he said, what he did. That is to us the image that we have worship. Any thoughts on, on that? I didn't really think I was going to tell you there was an image somewhere we all needed to worship. Really, you trust me more than that? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so, are we focusing on Christ? You know, is, is the follow up question, is the, is the practical side of that. Are we, are we is, is he our God? Is he your God? He's the one and only object of your worship and devotion. You can't put anything in place of him or your worship deteriorates. Your thoughts of God deteriorate. All right?
Let's go now back to the uh, book of Acts. And um, it says there that, uh, in verse 30, that uh, God has overlooked these uh, times of ignorance. Let's see if I missed something. Yes, I have. Let me back up. Went from that note that I made, I, I missed a few things. Let's read verses 30 and 31. I'm in Acts 17. Yeah, Acts chapter 17. In uh, verse 30 says, therefore, now here's the conclusion. Here's the sum of Paul's matter. He had he laid, he said, the God that, you know, you've got this idol, this altar, if you will, to the unknown God. That's who I'm declaring to you, the one you don't know. I'm going to reveal to you the one you don't know. And then he comes to the conclusion by the word therefore in verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So a couple of things I think Paul is, is, is tying all this together with, and one is looking at before the, the, the time when Christ came, before the gospel age, if you will. The gospel has always been there. The gospel was preached to Abraham, grace of Christ, and, and uh, Believing the word of God has been the only way that men have ever been saved, justified by believing in the Redeemer to come, or in our case, believing in the Redeemer who has come. Either way, it's the same. But when we characterize the age of our Lord having come as the gospel age, the fullness of the gospel, in that term, I'm, I don't sometimes like that because, you know, it seems limiting in the Old Testament, but it's okay. It's not a bad term, is it? But just for reference, we talk about the gospel age. So before the gospel age, it talks about God overlooking the times of ignorance. Now, let me think about that word overlooking. It can't be that God didn't notice it because he knows everything that can be known. It can't be that, as some translations even said, winked at. Does your translation say winked at? I think King James maybe says winked at. I'm reading New American Standard. Uh, and this was revised at about... Um, 67 or so. Um, yeah, well, it can't mean that, that, he, that he just said, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, don't worry about sin, don't worry about, you know, making an image and calling it your God. It wasn't that, was it? It wasn't God didn't know. It wasn't that he overlooked it in the sense that, that he wasn't going to punish men for their sins. It wasn't that he didn't see it. He didn't have a different standard in the Old Testament of justice <laughs> than he does in the New no, men were just as accountable then as they are now. It means that the ignorance of those who did not have the pure light of the gospel, did not have direct revelation from God as the Israelites themselves did, the nations that he for the most part, with exceptions, left in the darkness of their own thinking, of their own groping after God, with just the observable creation, that God exercised tremendous forbearance in withholding either his justice to pour out his wrath upon them for that ignorance or in revealing directly to them himself his own presence as he did with Israel. Well, in general to the nations during the Old Testament period it was a time of ignorance of true religion. It was a time of ignorance of, of the fullness that was to come in Christ and God left it that way to a great degree among the nations focusing the, the pure light upon the nation of Israel and they were to be a witness. They were very ineffective at times uh, in doing. Okay, so there's before the times of ignorance God overlooked, meaning I think, and uh, and you can look at it for yourself, but I believe meaning that he 
showed great forbearance when he withheld it. Wasn't there a period of some about 400 years before John the Baptist arrived on the scene to announce uh, the presence of Christ that there was no prophet at all, no word from God, and that Israelite historians uh, talk about it as a period of absolute silence from heaven? 400 years? I wonder why. Was that not at least, I think, somewhat preparatory, that darkness, preparatory to the great spotlight that would be shining upon Christ when he arrived? They say, now here, here, my beloved son. So I think that's the same thing before the gospel eggs, that God overlooked the times of ignorance. It doesn't mean that men aren't accountable, uh, but it means that the difference is now in the gospel age, he is now, so there's the then and the now, declaring to all men everywhere. You see the, the, the modifiers there. Everybody everywhere to do what? Repent. That's the one uh, duty that every one of us is responsible for. Man, woman, boy, or girl, we are to repent and uh, believe in Jesus Christ. That was the message of the apostles. That was the message of Jesus. Message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To change our mind concerning God, to turn in our thinking toward um, toward God, for Jesus Christ. I wrote down some maybe some better uh, definitions. Not really definitions of repenting, but maybe the ideas behind it. Um, to have a change in heart, in the sense of changing your resolve and your disposition towards God. We're the enemies of God in our thinking, in our natural selves, are we not? And so what is repentance but to have a change in your disposition of the mind toward God? And uh, to reform the soul after God by believing upon Christ. Maybe that's another way to, to kind of understand what repentance is. It's a change. It's not good wishes. It's an absolute change. It's a change in mind toward God that results in a change of life. And if the change of life does not follow, then the change of mind, the true repentance, is probably not taking place. And I look at my, I look back on my life since the days when, when I believe it was that, that God drew me to Christ savingly. And, and I know it's a fact now because I look back at, at the result of it. Not because I'm patting myself on the back that I've been so good or so godly, but I recognize the work of the hand of God in my life all along the way. Now, there's been a little bit of an ebb and flow. If I'm looking at it from a human level, which we should really never do, we should always just seek to obey the Scriptures and, and, and beg of the grace of Christ and the preserving power of God in our journey. We should never mark high marks on our spirituality because that's just that's just going to tell you how badly he did the next day, right? But but if I'm thinking in terms of my own life, it, it ebbs and it flows. There's been times when I felt like I was I was you know learning and 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 growing, and the grace of God was so evidently manifest. And then there's the times it just seems I'm rising up. And I never doubted the fact that I was a child of God because I didn't save myself. Well, I keep myself saved, but Christ saved me and changed me. And he's keeping me changed and keeping me saved. And he's sanctifying me. The work of the Holy Spirit is to, is to keep us close to Christ. Why is it that you feel compelled when you sin to repent and to confess? 
to keep a short account of those sins with God. Why would you do that? Why would you care? You know the answer. Because you have repented, you're inwardly motivated by the Spirit of God who dwells in you, drawn heavenward, that knowing that you've offended the, the Heavenly Father, you have to do something about it. Compelled for a remedy. You just can't continue in the same old types of sins. That's what John says in 1 John. If we know and, and are related to the Father, through Jesus Christ, we don't just keep sinning in the same old way. It doesn't mean we don't sin, but it means that we just can't sin without consequence. We can't sin without, without misery. We can't sin without being compelled toward action. Thank God for the conscience, right? He drives us to our knees in confession before our Father. Yeah. And, and the Christian life is one of not re having repented. Can't say repented in 1976, but it's one of repenting, is it not? Isn't it continuous? Repenting, isn't that proof of the life, the genuine life of faith, is that I'm not, not that I repented, but that I continue to repent and, and what drives me to that what compels me in a positive sense to do that and what assures me that if I confess my sins he is faithful to do what forgive and cleanse he it's not that it's not that fear that you know, I blew it again. I mean, this is, you know, this is same old sin. keeps knocking me down. I mean, pretty soon God's going to say, that's it. You know, let me see, Ron. One, two, three, four, five, ten times. You're out. Sorry. So sorry. No, I'm compelled by the relationship that is unchanging because of the merits of Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Jesus Christ in my behalf. Fully satisfying the wrath of God, the justice of God in my place. So that God is fully satisfied with me in virtue of what Christ did. So I go to the Father confessing, knowing what? That he will forgive and that he will cleanse and that he will restore in my mind the relationship with him. The, the, the distance that I have created by my own sinful rebellion, a lack of obedience or whatever the case may be, in my mind. God is never far from me or you, but... Our sins drive us in our relational sense away from Him. I mean, I felt far from God at times, even as a child of God. I'm just being honest with you here. You know, I felt far from God. But it was not that I was okay with that, you know? That's the difference. I wasn't okay with it. I knew I was far from God. And I knew that the problem was me, and I knew I needed a remedy. And so those are the things that help us in our relationship with God. It's the grace of God drawing us to that place of confession and repentance and restoral because he is faithful uh, to forgive us our sins. Alright? That's a good place to stop. I think I thought I might get through verse 31 but we'll look at that next week briefly and then the response in verse 32 to 34 to, to Paul's preaching which is a similar response that we all have. So. Well, God is good, isn't he? And uh, challenging to the mind, but but uh, so good to look at the word and uh, remind ourselves of the standard which God has set. We don't set our own standard. Um, we don't make our own God. I think it was Calvin who said uh, that our concepts of God can never equate to who God is. 
there was a Roman theologian too, I think his name is Novation, who said that all of our thoughts of God will be less than he really is. <laughs> Everything you could possibly think about God, and I'm, I'm looking out here and I know some, there's some great minds, okay? Better than mine. I'm talking about some of you folks, right? You can think in deep thoughts of God. I mean that in sincerity. But all your thoughts about God, all my thoughts about God, are ultimately less than it truly is. That's how wonderful and glorious and infinite perfection our Creator is. So, but, but our joy is to search Him out and to find Him because He will meet with us. Well, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time in the Word. It has been a time of, uh, of learning, a time of joy, a time of reminder uh, of our security, not in ourselves or on our works, which can never be, but in the merits and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we live. In Him we move. In Him we have our very existence. And so in our thinking, Lord, allow us as your people, to not limit you in our thinking, but to expand our knowledge through the revealed Word of God. We may glorify you as God. And as our concepts of you grow, and our, may our thankfulness also grow, and may our duty to obey your commands faithfully grow. These things we will do by the power and the grace that you supply. And in the second hour, Lord, may we worship you, who are worthy of all our adoration, highest creator, infinite in the heavens. May we bow before you, submit our lives to you in every way, learn from you, and go and tell others of our great God.